Turn your Bibles, please, to Jeremiah chapter 42. We've been following the book of Jeremiah throughout the past weeks and months, and we come almost to the end. We'll have one more sermon in uh, Jeremiah. The situation up to this point is that uh, Jeremiah has for some 40 years carried out his difficult task of warning a rebellious nation, the southern kingdom of Judah, uh, that uh, if they do not repent of their idolatries and of their wickedness and walk with God, obey his revealed will in the word of God, uh, that uh, they will bring upon themselves the punishment of God in the form of the king of Babylon and his troops, and they'll be carried into captivity. And they've already seen the destruction of the northern kingdom, and yet they continue to follow in this path, and uh, it comes to pass, as Jeremiah has warned. And Nebuchadnezzar comes and destroys the city after a year and a half siege of the city, and the terrible famine accompanying this siege, so that uh, when they finally, the last group, goes into captivity after the destruction of the city, there are only 745 people who go into captivity. Uh, the king has his eyes put out and his uh, sons are slain before him and he's carried into captivity. The poor of the land are left in the land to keep the land from returning to an absolute forest to till the land, and Nebuchadnezzar sets up a governor uh, over the land, Gedaliah. Uh, Jeremiah is allowed to choose whether he would like to stay or to go to Babylon, where he would be treated with honor, and he chooses to remain and to be under Gedaliah. There were roving bands of guerrilla troops uh, among the Israelites. These Several of these bands had not been captured. One was headed up by a man by the name of Ishmael, who was of the royal lineage. And Ishmael plots against this governor, Gedaliah, and takes his life deceitfully, uh, which constitutes, of course, rebellion against the king of Babylon. Another of these guerrilla bands has submitted, in effect, to Gedaliah, and when they find out what has taken place, they come and rescue uh, the people who are being carried off by Ishmael and his guerrilla band, Jeremiah among them. And uh, Johanan, the leader whose troops rescue uh, these people, uh, including Jeremiah, is not sure what to do at this point. And this is where our story picks up. They are afraid that because of this act of rebellion, although they haven't been guilty of it, that the king of Babylon will come and will uh, just wipe out the remaining people. And so their intention at this point is to go back to Egypt. In verse 17 of chapter 41, this is stated. And they departed and dwelt in the habitation of Chinham, which is by Bethlehem, 
to go to enter into Egypt. They're still in Judah, but they plan to go back to Egypt and there to seek security because Egypt was also a mighty power, one of the great super forces of the day. The reason for their seeking it is given in verse 18, because of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, for they were afraid of them because Ishmael had slain Gedaliah, whom the king of Babylon had made governor in the land. Uh, Ishmael himself had escaped when this uh, rescue was made by Johanan. He remains uh, alive, although not present. And they are afraid that that the king of Babylon will simply lash out as a result of this rebellion. But yet there's a hesitation. They have an intention. They've decided what they ought to do, where safety lies. But there's hesitation. This was a big step to go back to Egypt. And uh, maybe you're about to take a big step. Some big decision is before you, and uh, you feel that you know wherein uh, your interests lie, what's the best direction for you to take to secure your own interests. But there's a question in your mind, is this God's will? And there's hesitation. I think of a gentleman in our church who uh, several years ago called me, he was in business, and uh, he said that he felt that the, what was needed in his business to be competitive and continue to progress was to go statewide in his business. And uh, a way to do it was to join with uh, a man in uh, the southern part of the state who was in a similar business and for them to become partners. But this man was not a Christian. This was a big step to enter into a partnership and especially since this man was not a Christian. He felt that that would be the right move, but was this God's will? And he was hesitant. Let's see how they proceed. Notice first the petition for guidance. In chapter 42, and uh, the first three verses, we read that they seek guidance. Then all the captains of the forces and Johanan and all of the people from the least even unto the greatest came near and said to Jeremiah the prophet, Let, we beseech thee, our supplication be accepted before thee and pray for us unto the Lord thy God, even for all this remnant. For we are left but a few of many as thine eyes do behold us, that the Lord thy God may show us the way wherein we may walk and the thing that we may do. They seek God's direction. That's important. So often we launch out in a direction without seeking God's guidance, and after we're into it, then we stop and pray about it and ask God to bless the action that we've taken. But they stop before they take the action, and that's proper. I think of uh, so often talking to a young man, and I say, well, you finished high school. What are you going to do? I'm going to college. Wonderful. Where are you going? I'm going to Auburn. Well, that's a good Christian college. Um, <clears throat> Why are you going to uh, do that? Well, I'm going to study engineering. Why are you going to do that? Well, I, I made good grades in math. Um, 
Have you prayed about it? Huh? Have you prayed about it? No. Did it ever occur to you that uh, maybe God had some other design for your life? And uh, that you ought to stop right here and pray and get his direction before you take an action and then ask his blessing on it? We're so bad about uh, rushing off and then, then asking God's blessing on what we've already done. They seek God's guidance before they act. Notice how they sought it. They came to Jeremiah. They used the means at hand. Here's a prophet among them who's evidenced himself to be a true prophet of God. As his prophets over against those prophecies of the false prophets who kept speaking of peace, peace when there was no peace. His prophecies have fallen out one by one and he's demonstrated himself to be a faithful prophet of the Lord. So they come to Jeremiah and they say, Pray to the Lord thy God for us, uh, that we may know what he would have us to do. Uh, they use that means. They could also have used the scripture and should have. Uh, we don't know uh, just what they had with them in terms of scripture at that point as far as scrolls and so on, but had they looked at scripture, they had direction in scripture. In uh, Deuteronomy chapter 17 and verse 16, Moses, before they ever entered the land of Canaan, as he, uh, just before he dies, during the Exodus, he tells them that when they enter the land of Canaan, they'll want to appoint a king, which they should not do, but they'll want it, and he says, uh, when you do this, make sure that this king abides by certain things. One of the things that he is not to do, he is not to cause you to go back to Egypt. It says, He shall not multiply horses to himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply, to the end that he should multiply horses. For as much as the Lord hath said unto you, ye shall henceforth return no more that way. So here is clear direction concerning their question in the word of God. James I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, an excellent book, has an excellent chapter, God Our Guide. And in this chapter he speaks of the guidance of God and of the mistake that so many Christians make in seeking to ascertain God's guidance. He says, earnest Christians seeking guidance often go wrong about it. Why is this? Often the reason is that their notion of the nature and method of divine guidance is distorted. Their basic mistake is to think of guidance as essentially inward prompting by the Holy Spirit apart from the written word. And uh, he says, he details the history of people who tried to follow this path and some of the bizarre things that they've done in the name of the promptings of the Spirit of God, which were directly contrary to the Word of God. And uh, he says, what conduct of this short sort shows is a failure to grasp that the fundamental mode whereby our rational creator guides his rational creatures is by rational understanding and application of his written word. This mode of guidance is fundamental because it limits the area 
within which vocational guidance is needed and given. Now, what he means by vocational guidance, uh, the Word of God isn't going to tell us everything, every detail of what we're to do. It's, it's going to tell you that you're, if you're a Christian, you're only to marry a Christian, but it's not going to tell you whether to marry Susie or Jane, both of whom are Christians. That would fall in the area of vocational guidance, as he's using the term. Uh, now, he says that, number one, as we understand that he guides us through our rational understanding and application of the Word of God, that limits the area of vocational guidance, where we have to ascertain his will uh, straight from him, so to speak, through prayer and through the guidance of the Spirit. And uh, he says, this mode of guidance is fundamental because it limits the area within which vocational guidance is needed and given, and also because only those who have attuned themselves to it so that their basic attitudes are right are likely to be able to rec recognize vocational guidance when it comes. Perhaps they knew what Deuteronomy 17:16 said, and they were just uh, hesitant and uh, to apply it. They might feel that uh, their situation was unique uh, in that the city of Jerusalem was destroyed, the temple was destroyed, and the king of Babylon was a threat on the horizon. Uh, but we must beware of pleading special and extraordinary circumstances. Going back to my businessman friend, as we discussed his situation, whether he should go into partnership with this non-Christian, we turned to the Word of God. And we discussed 2 Corinthians 6.14, where it says, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. How does that apply in this situation, we said? Obviously, it doesn't mean that we should never enter into business relations with any non-Christians. We'd have to go out of the world, and he doesn't want us to be hermits and to withdraw from the world. We're to make our witness felt in the world and our presence and be salt and light. But what does it mean? What kind of partnership could you enter into, and, and how close could it be, and so on? Uh, and we wrestled around with this as we went to the Word of God first to seek God's guidance, and as we prayed, how should we apply this instruction in the Word? We see their petition for guidance. Notice the temptation to Jeremiah. What's the temptation of the spokesman for God when someone comes to him and they have a particular plan that they believe would solve their problems and they want to know if it's all right with God? What's the temptation to God's spokesman? It's always to say, bless you, my child. Go right ahead and do what you want to do and God will be with you. That's a terrific temptation. Uh, I've felt it many a time as a minister. I've seen people come to me and uh, ask uh, for guidance and counsel, and I'll say, well, here's what the Scriptures say. <clears throat> They'll leave and go until they find a pastor who will agree with them. And uh, they'll find it soon enough, you see, because that's a tremendous temptation to God's spokesman, uh, the one who's interpreting his word in a given situation. 
to say that which will be agreeable to the desires of those who come for counsel. But Jeremiah won't do that. And he says in verse 4 of 42, Behold, I will pray unto the Lord your God according to your words, and it shall come to pass that whatsoever thing the Lord shall answer you, I will declare it unto you. I will keep nothing back from you. I'm not going to water it down one whit. That's a faithful spokesman for God. The submission promised in verse 5 and 6. Then they said to Jeremiah, The Lord be a true and faithful witness between us, if we do not even according to all things for the which the Lord thy God shall send thee to us, whether it be good or whether it be evil, we will obey the voice of the Lord our God to whom we send it. Submission. They say, We will obey. We want to know what he would have us to do and whether it accords with our plans and what we think is best or not, we will do it. That's important. Uh, George Mueller, the great man of prayer, who ran an orphanage on prayer and who had such unusual guidance from God, he said, Seek to have no will of your own in order to ascertain the mind of God regarding any steps you propose to take so that you can honestly say You are willing to do the will of God if he will only be pleased to instruct you. That doesn't mean that you cannot have a desire about a given matter. Jesus had a desire not to go to the cross. He said, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. If there's any other way we can save men without me dying for them, I'd rather not die and go through that awful cursed death on the cross where you punish me for their sin. He had a desire, and he makes his desire known. But notice what he goes on to say. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. He wants it clear that his deepest desire is to do God's will at any cost. And that's what we must have. They express this attitude of heart. And that's an important condition in receiving guidance. Submission. Of course, first is to submit to Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord. Elizabeth Elliot has written one of the most helpful books on guidance, A Slow and Certain Light. And she says the first condition is the recognition of who God is. And she points out God is revealed in Jesus Christ, that God has taken on human flesh and made himself known in the person of Jesus Christ, who is God and man. And it's through trusting in Christ as our Savior and surrendering to him as our Lord, that we meet the first necessary condition of being in God's will and of receiving God's guidance. Have you done that? That's the starting place. Have you really surrendered your will to Christ, submitted to him as Lord of your life, and trusted him to forgive your sins on the basis of his death? They give the reason for their promised submission. In verse 5, uh, or verse 6, the last part, that it may be well with us when we obey the voice of the Lord our God. They say, we know that's the only path of happiness, real happiness, is to obey God. That's why we want to know what he would have us to do. The direction that they receive, we see the petition, the temptation, the submission, the direction that they receive. In uh, verse 7, God answers, but there's a delay before he answers. It came to pass after ten days that the word of the Lord came unto Jeremiah. Ten days. 
critical situation. When will the king come? And yet delay. Calvin says that's to teach us patience, just to wait on the Lord. But then the direction comes. Notice what they were to do and why. In uh, verse 9, He said unto them, Thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, unto whom ye sent me to present your supplication before him, if ye will still abide in this land, in Judah, then will I build you and not pluck you down. I will plant you and not pluck you up, for I repent me of the evil that I have done unto you. Be not afraid of the king of Babylon, of whom ye are afraid. Be not afraid of him, saith the Lord. For I am with you to save you and to deliver you from his hand, and I will show mercies unto you, that he may have mercy upon you. Calvin again says, This passage teaches us that the hearts and purposes of men are governed by power from above. Then we ought, <clears throat> this ought to be carefully noticed. For when we see ourselves surrounded on every side by the ungodly whom Satan drives to madness, so that they seek to tread us under their feet, except we feel fully assured that their hearts, feelings, and all their thoughts are in God's hands, we must necessarily be disheartened. And he would not have us be disheartened. When we know that God controls even the thoughts of our enemies, he has a bridle on them. He may let the bridle loose and have them tread over us. That's within his sovereignty, and if so, he means it for our good. But he's in control, and this should remove fear from our hearts. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man shall do unto me. What they were not to do, we see what they were to do, stay in the land. Why God would cause the king of Babylon to have mercy, and God would bless them. What they were not to do, they were not to go back to Egypt. Verse 13. But if ye say we will not dwell in this land, neither obey the voice of the Lord your God, saying, No, but we will go into the land of Egypt, where we shall see no war, nor hear the sound of the trumpet, nor have hunger of bread, and there will we dwell. It says, If you do that, uh, hear the word of the Lord. If you wholly set your faces to go into Egypt, and go and sojourn there, it shall come to pass that the sword which ye feared shall overtake you there in the land of Egypt, and the famine whereof ye were afraid shall follow close after you in Egypt, and there ye shall die. It's interesting. When God speaks through the Spirit and to Jeremiah, it's in accord with what he said through the Spirit in the writing of Scripture. God's Guidance will not contradict God's word. And here's agreement. He guideth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He won't guide me other than in the paths of righteousness. And the paths of righteousness are those paths revealed in his word. The dissimulation in heart. They've received their direction. What will they do? They decide to go into Egypt anyway. And uh, Jeremiah accuses them of dissimulation. In verse uh, 20, Ye dissembled in your hearts when ye sent me unto the Lord your God, saying, Pray for us unto the Lord our God, and according to all that the Lord shall say, So declare unto us, and we will do it. 
I have this day declared it to you, but you've not obeyed the voice of the Lord your God. He charges them with deceit or with self-deceit. You deceived yourselves. When they came to him, as Charles Simeon points out, they, when they professed, you find out from God what he wants us to do, and we will do it whether it accords with our plans or not, and what we think best or not. They felt they were sincere. Had Jeremiah said, wait a minute, you've already decided what you're going to do. There's no point in my going to the Lord. They'd say, no. And they, they felt sincere about it. But they deceived themselves. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Jeremiah 17, 9. Again, uh, Packer says, one of the great problems in guidance is that we don't suspect ourselves and our own motives. And Calvin says, it is a fault too common that men deliberate and ask counsel when they've already settled what to do. They wished their own perverse design to be approved by God. So he charges them with deceit, deceiving him but deceiving themselves. They charge him with deceit. In 43, verse 2, Then spake Azariah, And all the proud men saying unto Jeremiah, Thou speakest falsely. The Lord uh, thou speakest falsely. The Lord our God hath not sent thee to say, Go not into Egypt to sojourn there. (laughs) They went to him because they knew he was a true prophet. They knew he spoke the word of God. They've seen the evidence of it over the years. But now when that word runs contrary to what they want to do and what they've made up their mind to do and where they think their safety lies, they said, that's not the word of God. I remember a lady who came several years ago, and she wanted to divorce her husband. And we talked. I said, you have no biblical grounds to divorce your husband. And we met several times. And she came, she said, I'm a Christian. I believe the word of God. Uh, I believe the Bible to be the word of God. And I want to know what God would have me to do. I turned to Matthew 19, and I showed her she had no biblical grounds to divorce her husband. He had not been unfaithful, and so on. Incompatibility is no biblical ground. Everybody's incompatible. (laughs) And, uh, you know, the third session, she decided that the Bible wasn't the Word of God after all. That was interesting. And she finally found a preacher who would tell her it was all right, and then she went ahead and did it. God's blessing on her own design is what she wanted. The rejection of God's word. In chapter 43, verse 4, they returned to Egypt. So Johanan and all the captains of the forces and all the people obeyed not the voice of the Lord to dwell in the land of Judah. But they took all the remnant of Judah that were returned from all nations, whither they'd been driven, to dwell in the land of Judah, they took them and they, verse 7, so they came into the land of Egypt, for they obeyed not the voice of the Lord. They came even to Taphanes in Egypt, a particular town. After 800 years, 
They've been led out by Moses out of Egypt in the great exodus 800 years before, and now they go back to Egypt. That's sad, isn't it? And that's the story of the history of nations, isn't it? And their cycle that appears in history where a people will be oppressed and finally in courage and in boldness and in strength of character they will throw off the oppression and they'll become free. And uh, then they settle down and they are hardworking and they become affluent. And then the next generation has it easy and becomes weak and soft and forgets how hard it was and what freedom is valued at. And pretty soon they're not willing to pay that price of freedom, eternal vigilance and a strong stance, and they're led back again into slavery. That's the cycle of nations. You see it happen so often to individuals where they begin to walk with the Lord and they want to do his will and they see his blessing. And as they're blessed, they become careless and they become proud and they cease to be careful. They forget how bad it was when they were out of the will of God. And a chance comes along that seems to them would really put them on easy street. And although they feel this is probably not the will of God, they deceive themselves and they take that step and they're back in Egypt. I wonder if you've done that. I'm sure we have some here today who are right in that position where you've walked out of the will of God and you're back in Egypt and you feel the bondage the reason for doing this was first seeking safety from danger. But there's no safety outside of being in the center of the will of God. And if I'm in the center of the will of God, I'm safe no matter what my circumstances. They didn't believe God's word and his promise to be with them in the difficult walk, the difficult way. Their desire for ease. Let us go into Egypt where we won't hear the sound of war, the sound of trumpet, and where there'll be plenty of bread. The desire for ease. Peace at any price. Uh, Self-will. They were proud men, we're told, who wanted to have their own way. And the result, they take Jeremiah with them. And Jeremiah speaks again after they're down in Egypt. And he says, this is what the Lord says. You see this pavement here? He says, and the, God had him bury great stones under the pavement in sort of a symbolic action, great boulders. He says, this pavement of brick in this city where you've come to dwell, Nebuchadnezzar will come even to this place. He'll conquer Egypt. He will set up his pavilion, his tent, right on this pavement of brick. And you will die or you will go into captivity. That happened about 20 years later in 568. Nebuchadnezzar came down, conquered Egypt, set up his pavilion right there. As a matter of fact, the British Egyptologist uh, discovered great stones of under a pavement of brick right in that city not too many years ago. Possibly these same stones that Jeremiah buries. The result of walking out of the will of God is to bring on ourselves judgment and disaster. I think of my friend that I mentioned earlier, the businessman. As he wrestled with this uh, concerning uh, the partnership, he decided that it was not the will of God. Although it looked like a good business move, it was not the will of God. And he chose to follow God's will. It's interesting to see how his business has been blessed and how he's been blessed spiritually over the years. 
Seek God's guidance before you settle on a plan of action or step out in a direction. Search your heart for self-deceit. Suspect yourself. Surrender your will to God's direction, whatever and however costly that may be. Suppose you've stepped out of God's will and you're back in Egypt. Can anything be done about it? Yes, you can surrender afresh. You can start fresh. It's not irreparable damage that's been done. Again, to quote from Packer, he says uh, that, Is the damage irrevocable? Must he now be put off course for life? Thank God, no. Our God is a God who not merely restores, but takes up our mistakes and follows into his plan for us and brings good out of them. This is part of the wonder of his gracious sovereignty. I will restore unto you the years that the locust hath eaten, and ye shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God that hath dealt wondrously with you. Joel 2.25 Surrender afresh. Come back into the will of God. And serve Christ daily, starting now. Start with a surrender to him as Lord and Savior if you've never done that. That's the starting place. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this passage and its instruction concerning guidance and the awful danger of self-deceit. Father, we pray that as we partake of the communion now, that it would be a rededication to doing your will as you make it known and of seeking your will. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.